0: Hello, and welcome to episode 68 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. This is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which features a an extensive library of 30-minute or less conversations with people from around the tennis world. So be sure to check out his uh, extensive back catalog as well in addition to the previous 67 exciting episodes of the Tennis Abstract podcast. Number 68 seems like a number that's not particularly noteworthy, especially in tennis history. But since we are recording this on Sunday, the day before the start of Wimbledon 2019, do have to point out that on the schedule we're on now, we're going to start Wimbledon with episode 68, end it with episode 70, right in keeping with the most famous set of tennis ever played at Wimbledon, uh, Isner Mahu seventy sixty eight. So this is this is the Mahu episode. Carl, do we have anything to say about Nicholas Mahu?
1: By all accounts, wonderful guy. Had some really good singles moments in his career, which is ongoing but seems to be on the downswing, and has been the top doubles player in the world. I think won every Grand Slam title. So really one of the one of the fixtures of the tour in in a great way and uh, you know a practitioner of classic grass court serve and volley tennis so beloved by the traditionalists and by me uh, so I hope he sticks with us for quite a while longer maybe 68 more years 68
0: more years long enough for Wimbledon to change their rules back and open up the possibility for another 70 68 final set
1: yeah, and we still have the chance for a seventy-sixty-eight tiebreaker, so holding out for that one. Oh, that that would be some thrilling stuff.
0: Um, yeah, as you mentioned, he's still very much in the doubles. He lost in singles qualifying this year, and he's he's faded away from relevance on the singles tour. Although he did make the quarterfinals, I believe, at Queens Club and lost a really a really tight and very long match with Gilles Simon. Um, but not going to be a factor at Wimbledon this year, but very much a factor in the doubles. Uh, he has had much of a success lately with Pierre-Eugier We've mentioned the last couple weeks that Herbert has decided to focus on the singles, not playing doubles. Uh, an announcement that waited about five days before it came out that he was going to play doubles at Wimbledon with Andy Murray. It sounded like Mahu didn't love that, but Mahu is uh, pairing with Edouard Roger-Vaseline, another French doubles specialist. So, I mean, he could be very much in the mix for uh, winning another title, just with a different partner this time around. So we'll be rooting for him. And Carl, I'm glad you mentioned the the serve and volley, old school traditionalist stuff that that I know I know you like. I like, although maybe not quite as much. Uh, we weren't going to talk about this to the end, but let's just jump right in. There was an article in the New York Times in the last couple days by Joel Drucker, a name who's probably familiar to many of you as a longtime tennis journalist, and. It was about the, the decline over several decades of servant volley, net play, just the traditional sort of grass court tennis that, that people of our generation grew up with. And there are still some, some exemplars of that, like Mahu and Ivo Karlovich does it, Feliciano Lopez does it and was very successful with it at Queen's Club as well. So the, there's still a few people who do. Other players will throw it in now and then. Um, some players do become considerably more aggressive. On the grass, uh, even if they're not serving volleying, but it has died down quite a bit, and I think we we're pretty much in agreement on the reasons for that. Like that, the, the technology has changed. Players can hit harder. Players are stronger off of both both wings. Just the the math has changed for the success rate of servant volleying coming into the net. In general, it's just not as successful as it once was, and most players are better off hanging out at the baseline. And as a result, they don't practice their their volleys or their servant volley technique. And it becomes a bit of a, a vicious cycle where you don't do it, so you're not practicing it, so you aren't as good at it, so it's something you don't do, and, and on and on we go. But, Carl, I, I want to focus on what the what the possibilities still are. Because like I said, there are some players who still do it, like Mahu and Feliciano Lopez. Um, plenty of players still mix in some serve and volleying. Um, I mean, do you think that that players should do it more that at this point it's so rare that it's, it's underutilized.
1: It's definitely possible that for some players in some situations it's underutilized. I, I think especially if players practiced the, the part of serve and volley that's like between the serve and the volley more that, that, they could become better at it. Because, you know, I think often they're just not even comfortable with, like, what is the ideal motion for doing this? I mean, even many players who play doubles don't ever serve in volley in doubles. So they're not even getting the practice there. Uh, and it seems like that would just be a useful practice anyway to figure out, like, the best way to set up at the net, what is the best spot, given where your opponent is and where the ball is, you know, what how you should be in a position so that you can explode into the volley... That, that all seems like it could benefit from practice, but this is a zero-sum game. I mean, there are so many other things to practice that are more frequent, and you called that a, a vicious cycle, but it could just be we've become more efficient at allocating resources in practice, and that if, you can, if you're going to hit a return on almost every return point and you're going to serve in volley, even if you get really good at it only a half dozen or a dozen times, then you know, any marginal improvement you can make on return is going to be worth so much relative to to serve and volley. The other thing I'd really love to know and that I just think I'm ill-equipped to answer, and maybe you are too, but that coaches maybe could tell us is to what extent is the volley part of serve and volley something that you can improve with practice? On the one hand, it makes perfect sense to me that you can and that um, you, know, you, can, you can go from having no idea what to do to, to pulling off certain shots. But on the other hand, it's such an instinctual Uh, shot because of the the significantly decreased amount of time you have to figure out what to do that, you know, I think of videos of certain players when they were kids showing just incredible reflexes for for volume back balls coming off of them, coming at them like from the wall um, and wondering to what extent that's just something that you either have or you don't, whereas you can learn what to do with a ball at the baseline because you have that extra, I don't know, half second or so.
0: Yeah, that is, that is a tough question. Um, because that you'd think that would be a tough thing to practice. I mean, you can, you can practice the servant volley motion. You can, you can have a coach feed you volleys, but can you have a coach feed you like super fast, low returns that you have to half volley right at the, the service line? Like that's, uh, yeah, I can't even imagine how you'd practice that other than just serve and volleying a lot. Like, it, it's it's a hard thing to do. And even the players who are the very best at it, like a McEnroe or Navratilova, like, it isn't always successful. They often miss those shots. They often hit really weak replies off of those shots. There's only so much you can do about it. I mean, Feliciano Lopez might be the best guy out there now in terms of handling those balls. And, I mean, he's, he missed plenty in his Queens Club run. That's just sort of the cost of doing business if you're serving and volleying a lot. Uh, i think these days the more likely outcome is we're going to have the the bigger servers like we, we see isner do this like isner isn't a serve and volleyer but he will serve and volley uh ronic does it i haven't seen Aljay ali seem do it more than a couple times but he seems like a pretty good candidate to join the list if you if you have people who are big servers and and generally not getting a lot of returns coming back it, they could deploy serve and volley as sort of a surprise tactic now and then just to, to keep returners on their toes to force them to think more about how they're returning what are already these very difficult serves to get back in play do, do you think that's where where the marginal gains would be if if these players who who are already serving big just used it as a as sort of a surprise tactic even like you say if it's only a half dozen times in a match like do you think that's better than the current standard, which probably has a median of zero times a
1: match? Uh, I think so. I you know I think it's it's actually something that I look at when I look at the stats from a match that you and your cohort have charted in the Match Charting Project, because. You know, usually in a match there will be zero serve and volley points from both players. I think usually, certainly often. And sometimes there will be a handful, and then I look to see the success rate. And if the success rate is really high, then it suggests, A, that probably element of surprise was involved, and B, as we've discussed earlier on the show, if one tactic is much more successful than the alternative, the player is under-utilizing it and should keep using it until the success rate's kind of even out. So... Uh, I think we've even talked before. Maybe I've even dabbled in, like, trying to answer that question using the charting. But that I, I would be interested in, like, you know, when it's done a couple of times, is it successful? Because the other factor is, if you have a player who's only doing it a couple of times a match, like, are they equipped to pull it off? It's similar to what we talked about with the drop serve. Like, if you never do it, you're going to do it well when you when you take it out of your bag of, of tricks. Um, I, I have a couple of other... Um, Hypotheses to float, but wondering what you think about that. Like, is that a study that that could be done, or are there too many confounding factors?
0: Well, one confounding factor I can think of offhand is if you if if you are thinking about the the guys who are already big servers, then when they're serving volleying, like they're rarely having to do the sort of thing that we started out talking about, like the the really difficult acrobatics that you think of with with John McEnroe. Because uh, if you're, I'm just thinking, I've been watching a lot of Ajay Ali Asim lately, and I mean he's got this big wide serve he can hit in the deuce court or, or the ad court. And if he hits that, and let's say 10% of the time he comes in behind it, then, okay, maybe maybe 10% of those times the guy hits a miraculous return and, and gets a winner past him. Maybe seven times out of the, out of 10, the return doesn't even come back. Whether it was because of the serve and volley or not, we'll never know. And then two times out of 10, it'll be a floater. It'll be an easy ball to put away. Uh, And you don't have to be a good serve and volleyer. You maybe didn't even have to serve and volley at all to just have a floater swatted out of the air, overhead, easy volley, swinging volley, whatever. It's it's an easy win. And if... if let's say you you look at an Ajay Ali asim match and see that he went five for five on serving volley points, that might mean that he he did s- maybe not selected the right moments, but selected the right serves to come in behind. Uh, and if he went from five serving volley points like that to ten, like, I'm not sure if it would affect his success rate on those next five points, changing them from non-serving volleys to serving volley points. I'm sure that his success rate would change if he went from five to fifty. If you went to being from being a rare servant volleyer to being a, a mostly a servant volleyer, but I'm I'm not sure. If, yeah, I'm just not sure the theory works. If there's maybe there's some nonlinear point along the way.
1: That's interesting. And do you, and do you think that it's um, it's it also means that if he's if he's using his best serves and serve and volleying then he was almost definitely going to win that point anyway so comparing to his overall success rate is not valid
0: yeah it could be um, yeah I, I don't know it, 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 these would be I think this would be interesting stuff to study but difficult in in part because there are so few points in most matches So we and obviously we don't know what would happen if a player hit more serve and volley it, it did more serve and volley than they actually did because I mean he didn't or else we wouldn't be talking about it and the other factor is, I think that, that players tend, if they're rarely serve and volleying, when they do serve and volley, they do it more of as a sort of, I'm not sure how to put this, but like a, a statement or a reminder that they could, so they'll be doing it at, at 40 love in a service game or something. And they're doing it because they know the point isn't that important, but of course the returner knows it isn't that important either. So if the returner sees a hard serve coming at them, they see the guy coming in behind it... like. I mean the returner isn't going to optimize their return to to beat the serve and volley when they're down 40 love against a big server on a grass court. It's just neither player thinks it's that important. So to the I guess that is something we could look at. We could look at win probability on serve and volley points and see whether players are just throwing them in there when they don't matter to see if they can trick their opponents into thinking that more will be coming. Uh, I guess that's the sort of confounder you're talking about. But you said you had a couple other hypotheses. I'm eager to hear those.
1: Yeah, so one is that servant volley was not good for the body, is not good for the body. And, you know, we we just talked about some older players who do it. So maybe this hypothesis is, is garbage, but I think they're probably players of their generation were not thinking of who, who didn't make it to anywhere near this age. So yeah, Karlovic, Mayu, Lopez, uh, all have had long careers with serve and volley. Um, but, you know, from the previous generation, there are a lot of players who, who got pretty beat up playing that style. And I remember um, some tennis event I went to, Pat Cash talking about that, and he didn't have a very long career, and he's still playing the senior circuit, which is why he was there. But... He doesn't he looks like someone who took a lot of abuse playing tennis as a you know full-fledged tour pro uh, and I think I've, I've also heard Andy Murray talk about how he doesn't do it you know he's someone who has a better than average serve he's a tall guy and he has I think very good hands at net and he almost never serves in volleys and he's had a lot of physical problems and I think he said that serve volley is pretty hard on his body even though he's been doing it in doubles with his after hip surgery. So one theory is maybe that the players, um, either just aren't lasting as long in this generation of a lot of older players so we are not seeing them or that more players realize that it was, it was, uh, difficult for them just because of the explosive nature of coming out of the serve and into the, into the net. Uh, so that's one theory. Second one is that if it is a style that takes a while to, to kind of figure out and that pl- uh, a young player can more quickly master the baseline game, that it's a style you won't have as much success in at a young age and that to the extent that we're kind of standardizing and regular regularizing uh, tennis training, um, that, you know, someone who is a sort of idiosyncratic genius maybe comes late to the sport like John McEnroe or Pete Sampras who struggled as a kid with the one-handed backhand, but later said it helped him immensely also in, in volleying and serving and volleying, uh, that maybe they just would be selected out or have a tougher time of it these days. In the developmental stage, we'd be less likely to see them um, realize their full potential as pros.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I think that doesn't get raised enough that, that yeah, that's the sort of players you're going to see as pros. Like the, They're usually starting to make noise, maybe not outside of their... Their own like academies or outside of their own countries, but they're they're making noise by age twelve or thirteen, and often sooner. And a lot of times, players who aren't that good by that age, like they wash out or they do other things. Uh, and I think it's becoming rarer for for players to develop later. Like maybe, maybe it's always been rare, and we just there are there's that certain group of, of examples that we we tend to go back to a lot like you mentioned sampras and i the the more recent name is milos ronich um the joke is that until a certain age everybody beat milos um and then one day they didn't anymore um uh, but i mean he, that's he, a seinfeld reference for
1: people who don't get that yet
0: right i even forgot that it had a, a, a an older uh, meaning than just beating milos ronich for me it was funny either way but sure um so, so yeah, he he come. He might be as close as we have to like a young servant volleyer these days. Uh, but even if we even if we took all this out of the equation, if it if it wasn't hard on the body, if it was possible to develop as a servant volleyer, given that that players are stronger, players are stronger on both wings than they used to be, at least on average, and the technology makes it possible to hit better passing shots. You know, if if you take out the other negatives of servant volley, do you think you do you think it's possible to be a top player as as a full time or close to servant vollier these
1: days? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think you have to be an incredible volleyer to some extent, uh, and and by by that just volleyer, I don't just mean what you do when the ball hits your racket without a bounce, but what you do um, in terms of positioning and, and setting up the volley with your previous shot. Um, and, you know, I think part of it is, I, I was thinking about what you said about the incredible highlight reel shots and that that's, that's not what Auger Eliassime needs to do generally if he's hitting a really big serve out wide. And I was thinking, like, if, if you're John McEnroe and you have to do something incredibly highlight reel worthy, then you've already lost in the sense that you're supposed to be at an advantage in a serve point, especially in the men's game. So I'm wondering if there's like in the women's game, players who are already struggling regularly on serve, where you know where it's closer to 50-50 between serve and return, where it would matter less if they ended up losing often by being passed or just you know a really tough volley that set up a pass. That maybe because there's less of an edge to give up, it's worth uh, being more uh, varied in your approach. Um, maybe that's far fetched, in the opposite way to think of it. But I just think like men are loath to give up the plus one shot that is so much more commonly put away in the men's game than the women's game.
0: Yes, I I'm hesitating because I'm I'm not sure it is more commonly put away in the men's game than the women's game, um, or at least not by much. I I am skeptical about. I, I see the logic behind that, that if you have less to give up on on serve, then you can take more chances. On the other hand, like one way of thinking about the difference between the women's game and the men's game is that whether it's because the return is better or players are better at returning relative to the rest of the game, whatever the reason is, it, it's, a, it's a more return focused game. Uh, and if you have players who are coming forward behind not great serves, that seems to just hand the point over to a good returner. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if someone who's winning 55% of service points could get that down to 40% if she decided to come in behind that, even if she was a pretty good vollier. But again, these are tough counterfactuals to test.
1: Uh, if any of the women's draws listening, we, we'd love to see you try and see what happens, but we can't make up the prize money you might lose, so, you know, it's up to you.
0: Yeah, it is. it is entirely up to them. So one I think there is a bit of a compromise here and I'm wondering what you think about this that so after the US Open last year um someone wrote an art, Amy Lundy wrote an article for 538 talking about how her her position on this was that players were leaving points on the table. Um uh, and she had some numbers provided to her by the US Open uh, that that suggested that players are winning a lot more serve and volley points than non serve and volley points and when i looked at that i i didn't have like we don't have match charting data for every match but we have match charting data for a, a lot of the matches she was talking about and it turned out to kind of hinge on the definition of serve and volley. So I think what we're talking about is the explicit tactic that, you know, as you're serving, you have a motion that leads you into the court. You're coming, you're, you're rushing in immediately behind your serve. You've decided you've committed to that when you're serving. Um, There, there's another thing that could happen that is sort of like the, the, the Felix tactic I was talking about where you hit a big serve, you maybe cheat in a step or two, and you get a weak reply maybe a floater maybe even a, maybe even a lob you rush in and and you hit a net shot to win the point like that that's not traditional serve and volleying it's not serve and volleying at all the way i think about it but it is a serve and a volley <laughs> and a lot of the points that i think were showing up in the data set that amy used that that the us open provided were the latter category that they they weren't serve and volley points at all they were points that the the server was going to win no matter what because almost by definition, they occurred because of weak returns. And they, they made the, the plus one winner super easy, whether it's a, a shallow forehand or a swinging volley or whatever. Uh, so th- I didn't bring that up to, you know, to, to relitigate that argument. But I did bring it up because that seems to be, maybe this is a growing tactic. We see Serena do it. Um, I've seen a lot of the young Canadians do it. Ronish does it a lot. Pospisil does it even more. Felix does it sometimes, Shapovalov is pretty aggressive with it. So the idea is, you know, you hit a big serve, you come in a couple steps, so you give up a little bit of ground between you and the baseline. So so there is the possibility the returner hits a tremendous shot, and you can't do anything with it. Uh, but, like, if, if the returner hits a weak shot, then... Like, you, you're not guaranteed a plus 1 winner but you've increased your odds for a plus 1 winner without without taking as many chances or as much of a risk as you do with a traditional serve and volley. I mean do you think Carl that there's that this is something that players could take more advantage of just a, a more
1: aggressive court position immediately after the first serve? Serve in opportunistic volley or yeah, um serve in no person's land. I want to call it the Canadian it just... charge. <laughs> I don't know, was wasn't Serena doing it first? Um, um probably, but I like the idea of a of a
0: of a military style name coupled with Canada.
1: Well, if we skip Canada, the Serena Sally maybe. There um, we go.
0: That's good. Serena Sally, I
1: like it. I yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's it's usually like a swinging volley. I guess it's occasionally a smash. So the traditionalists might not be satisfied, but the general idea of take advantage of a big serve and a weak return by giving yourself the best chance to put it away quickly, especially without a bounce. Um, you know, that's that that's that covers a lot of what serve and volley is and why people would do it. So uh, yeah, I dig it.
0: Yeah, I I think that. I, I've been thinking this for a while. We we had a run of of episodes a couple months ago, maybe more than that, where I couldn't stop talking about court position in general. Just I I, I was really focused on on watching where players stood and noticed that, especially in the women's game, the more successful women were. It seemed to be a little more aggressive than what I'd noticed in past years. And what I all I mean by that is just their position relative to the baseline. So instead of ATP clay court style camping out several feet behind the baseline, they would their default position would be maybe one step behind the baseline, and then given any opportunity or any slight edge in the rally, they would step forward onto the baseline or maybe even a half step in front of that. And that just opens up so many, so many more angles. And that gives us a great segue into talking about actual tennis results, which I, I meant to do before the 25-minute mark. But... The biggest match in, in this final in Wimbledon warm-up week, or the, the biggest tournament was the Eastbourne premiere, confusingly named the Nature Valley International, but it is a WTA premiere, and the final ended up being between Karolina Pliskova and Angelique Kerber. Pliskova came out on top, um, Pliskova just dominated everything and everyone all week and looks unbeatable going into Wimbledon, but... I watched a couple of Kerber's matches before the final. I think she played Rebecca Pedersen in the second round, and then she beat Halep in the quarterfinal. And in both of those matches, she was doing a sort of extreme form of this tactic where I mean, she was probably never more than one full step inside the baseline, but it seemed like she would also never have more than one consecutive shot where she was behind the baseline. And Kerber's so good just hitting... hitting both her forehand and backhand in both directions for winners, that when you give her that slightly improved angle by being one more step forward, she's just unbeatable. I mean, it, it, I've just used the word unbeatable twice about players who faced each other on Saturday, so maybe I don't know what unbeatable means. But point is, like, just having a more aggressive court position is, it opens up a lot more possibilities. And if, if you have good ground strokes, it makes them that much better and i'm wondering carl if you if you would agree with this that before i saw kerber lose to plishkova this seemed like a very grass court tailored tactic i mean in theory the angles are the same on every surface but if you're trying to keep points short that feels more like a, a grass courty kind of thing so i mean would you think that this sort of tactic is one of the reasons why kerber is as good as she is on grass courts
1: yeah, and I think you have to be good in other ways to pull off the tactic. So she's one of the contingent of WTA players who's so good at controlling the ball, generating power, directing it where she wants, uh, from her knees, basically. Uh, a shot I can't even like imagine trying to pull off without breaking something. And uh, it seemed, I mean, even in the final where she was outplayed, she hit some incredible backhand cross-court Flat, like right over the net, sharply angled winners uh, from aggressive positions, and she um, she has to be able to like also react to the to the bounce. The bounce might not be clean; it's a natural surface, as we said, and it could be quite low and skiddy and coming at you fast. And so, to be able to do something aggressive with that is itself a skill, and one that I think some players just partly because of how short the grass court season is and how few matches they get, just don't develop in the same way.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the the point you mentioned in passing that, that it involves reacting to an unpredictable bounce, that's one of the things we were touching on either last week or the week before with sort of the natural surfaces skills that apply to clay as well. I mean, that hasn't translated into a lot of success for Kerber on clay, but uh, that's something that a lot of people don't get growing up if they play entirely on hard courts, like like so many juniors do. Um, now Plishkova is, is I have sort of opposite feelings about. So Kerber, I came away from watching her in Eastbourne thinking, "Oh my gosh, she's so good on grass," yet somehow she lost. Um, Plishkova won. She looked very good, but I wonder. Like I, I was trying to figure out why she she doesn't win all the time. Like I, I felt similarly watching her in Eastbourne as I have watching Julia Gergis in in other grass court matches. Because when their when their serve is clicking and they're they're not making bad errors, they they look like they should be unbeatable. I keep using that word, but. Um, In Pliskova's case, I mean, she's won a few grass court titles. I think I saw someone said on Twitter now with her, this was either her third or fourth career grass court title and no active woman with that many grass court titles hasn't won Wimbledon. Um, It's a pretty small group of people because there aren't that many WTA grass court events and a few players, notably the Williams sisters, have dominated the the Wimbledon tallies. But but still, I mean, it, it seems like like Plishkova should be better than she than she has turned out to be. I'm not sure if I'm I'm communicating this idea very well, but she looks like she could be a dominant player even if her results haven't borne that out. I mean, is there anything, Carl, that you've picked up in her game that's that is the Achilles heel that's stopping her from being a really dominant force on a fast surface?
1: Yeah, I mean it's hard to say one thing. Like she she clearly like just about every player is somewhat inconsistent, and in there there are tournaments where she looks great and then has one bad match, and that's it. But you know, generally, someone as good as her, by having that many opportunities, eventually wins one or more. Uh, and she came so close at the U.S. Open uh, against Kerber, right? That was that was her her final, um, where I think it was seven five in the in the third. Uh, and her record at Wimbledon is just. Yeah, she's won those three grass titles, but she hasn't really come close at Wimbledon. Like she's rarely gotten past the second round.
0: Uh, and I guess, yeah, I, mean, should, I guess
1: we should point out
0: that that the week before Eastbourne, she lost in I believe the second round at Birmingham to her twin sister. Which I mean, there's other factors involved there with playing against someone who knows your game so well. But that's that's not a good loss to be taking two weeks before before a Grand Slam that you're one of the favorites to win.
1: Yeah. When I was thinking inconsistency, I was thinking, yeah, look at those five Eastbourne scores. And I mean, she never lost more than three games in a set, but she did just lose to her twin sister who was ranked outside the top 100, who is, by the way, a dangerous player and maybe will end up going further at Wimbledon than her sister does. But um, yeah, I, 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 you know, the other thing that is often talked about with her is her movement. And I think, I was defending her movement on clay. She certainly looked good moving around at Eastbourne, but I think keeping points short is going to be pretty critical if she comes up against someone as consistent as Kerber again, uh, in order to avoid um, having you know a grass court rally turn into a slow hard court one.
0: So I, one of the most common responses I saw to this match on Twitter was maybe everyone was looking for the same uh, this the same hot take, but. After Pliskova pretty much dominated her in that match, a lot of people were were responding and saying, "Ah, oh, I think Kerber wins the Wimbledon rematch." And I haven't looked at their their grass court Elo's, but I think they're I think they're in the same ballpark. If they do face off in at Wimbledon, which will be in the final because they're in opposite halves of the draw, uh,
1: do you favor Pliskova to to win again? Uh... Before I go out on a ledge, I'm wondering how likely it is that we'll we'll ever put my prediction to the test. Is what do you think the probability is? They meet the final. It's got to be uh, it's one extre- percent. <laughs> it's extremely low. I mean, I
0: I, I think they're both around eight to ten percent to to win the tournament. So let's say they're like, let's say they're both. Let's say on the extreme side, let's say they're both twenty five percent to reach the final. I mean, that's way too high. But that would mean there's a six percent chance they face off in the final. Um, it's, it's got to be much lower than that, though. So, I mean, maximum probably 2%. So, and say whatever you want, there's a 98% chance we'll never test it.
1: Perfect. Uh, I would pick Kerber on the strength of just how dominant her grass court elo was coming into this past week. And Plushko's was good, but nowhere near it. Now, granted, that will change because of the results. But um, Kerber's record on grass at Wimbledon and elsewhere really has been consistent and strong and that's a big deal because most players just don't get enough grass matches for us to know for sure but it seems like a pretty sure thing that kerber is is among the very best in the world maybe top two or three on grass
0: yeah and to that point you can say some of the same things about plishkova since she's played so much and had so much success on grass if if we wanted a matchup between two players who we know things about about their grass court skills like these are the the players we want I haven't looked at like the number of grass court matches in their careers, but um, aside from the Williams sisters, just because they've been around for so long, Plushkin and Kerber have to be pretty close to the top of the list of career grass court matches, career grass court wins, um, and so many players are in single digits. I mean, I I don't think we mentioned this in last week's episode, but... I was looking at Marketa von Um, uh, I think she she only played in Eastbourne. I believe she won her first round match. Maybe it was against Sai Sai Zheng, uh, and then lost in the second round. I think that was to Elise Mertens. But in any case, von Drusheva had maybe she'd never won a grass court match, or she'd won she'd qualified or something, but she she'd never won a main draw grass court match. So this is someone who's very much in the headlines. At least was a few weeks ago. Someone coming off a, a Grand Slam final and not only does she have basically no grass court wins, she doesn't even have 10 grass court matches. We, we just have so little data about how players adjust to this surface. Uh, there's a, a lot of, a lot of chances for surprises. Um, uh, and that's a really great segue to one other name. I wanted to talk about going into Wimbledon on the women's side, which is Corey Goff, who is 15 years old and qualified for Wimbledon, the youngest player ever to come through qualifying, uh, And did so with aplomb. I mean, she just breezed past three players who are all pretty good. Her first-round opponent, Aliana Bolsova, uh, made the fourth round at Roland Garros and probably a better clay court player, but still looked pretty solid in that first-round match. So Goff didn't get where she is by an easy draw, and then she just plowed through her final match against... I'm blanking on the opponent right now, but I think that was one-and-one so
1: Metien say it again (laughs) I'm sorry I probably said it wrong oh Um, Minin. Grisha okay
0: yeah Um, yeah so I mean a pretty good player who I think made the quarterfinals in her Togenbosch a couple weeks ago Uh, again not a not a super hard draw but this is this is a legit at least qualifying level player someone on the fringes of the top 100 and and Goff just blasted past her and as a reward for qualifying, she gets a first-round match at Wimbledon with Venus Williams, which is a, a pretty amazing opportunity for her. And, Carl, I think you got a chance to watch some Corey Goff from qualifying.
1: Am I right? Yeah. You did. Yeah, we- and at and, uh, US Open last year. Oh, okay. I
0: forgot about that. Um, I mean, what... Where do you think she's at? I mean are, are are you are you surprised that she was able to to win at this level? Do you think I mean, do you think she could put together a few wins in the main draw? Like what what do you think her level is right
1: now? Well, she's ranked right around 300 and playing like around 150 or 100, I think, which yeah, certainly that's good enough to win some matches. You know, Venus Williams at Wimbledon is a very intimidating proposition, but this is, sadly, Venus pretty far off her peak. Um, I, I, I certainly think Goff could win that match, and either way, it'll be incredibly exciting. I mean, it's just so cool that they've managed to overlap, and not only overlap, but to face each other at Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, I mean, she has a pretty complete game, and I, I'm really impressed by her like demeanor and approach on court. I mean, it's it's maybe a little hard to, to judge from three matches she won easily, and she seemed more excitable at times at the U.S. Open last year when she was when she was almost a year younger. Um, but I mean, she just she would hit a bad error and very calmly get the ball set up and and play a point the same way the next time, except you know not hit an error at the end. So seems to have a lot of resources in her game and just in her mind and uh, I'm impressed yeah I was I was really impressed as well like, I think if you
0: if you watched her and there were no close-ups on on her face to give to, to give you a reason to judge her age I, I don't think you would you would ever dream that she's 15. Um, I mean she, she looks like someone who could have the same kind of run that Anna Samova had. Was it last summer that, that she put together a couple a couple big wins, uh, and I mean, Goff will be doing it at least one year <laughs> earlier relative to her age. So, and it's it's really impressive if you haven't watched her play, listeners. Um, both her first round and third round qualifying matches are archived on Wimbledon's YouTube channel. I mean, not by name, but they they archive the full the full stream from Court Eleven. So, I think it's day two or day four. Uh, you can watch. You can watch Corey Goff um, start to make some history. Um, having mentioned Venus, I, did, I don't really want to go through the whole draw. We talked a lot about general draw forecasting stuff, and we're going to spare you a, a quarter by quarter blow of this thing. But uh, one big name is, of course, Serena Williams, who's. She's seated 11th. Um, my forecast has her at 1.2% to win the title, which seems incredibly low. Uh, she lines up to possibly play Julia Gerges in the third round. Uh, she could get Kerber in the fourth round. We haven't seen much of her. Like she, she, In some of her recent tournaments, she's pulled out with injury. Uh, I mean, it's it's tough to know where her level's at, where her health is at, even where her motivation is at, although it's tough to imagine an unmotivated Serena. Um, but what do you think, Carl? Is is one point two fair given the the uncertainty of of what we know about her at this stage?
1: Yeah, I think it's fair. I think there were reasons to doubt doubt her last year at Wimbledon, and she made it to the final. Um, it really—if you saw those same recent results from somebody else, you you wouldn't give them anywhere near a one point two percent chance at Wimbledon. I mean the I, I I would be interested from a forecasting perspective in what's true, but to me when I see two walkovers back to at, back at tournaments, that's more troubling than two losses in that same round. Um, that she could you know, she decided she couldn't even go out and play those matches and here's a tournament where you gotta win seven to, to win. So I think that's my biggest concern going in, but my biggest reason for belief is just that she's won so many of her big titles without much reason to expect that she'd be near her best.
0: Yeah, it does seem like she's the most unpredictable, just because we know her ceiling is so high. And because she's got such a power game, she doesn't need to be 100% to, to play really well, to even win the tournament. So if she's healthy enough to be... I mean, to be able to take her, get herself out there and play a tennis match every other day, then she probably doesn't even have to be close to 100% to at least make a deep run. Maybe not good enough to win the title, but um, could be a factor. Could withdraw before the second round. Um, could see another one of those. So, let's see. Any? Uh, I want to spend some time with, with the men's draw and some recent men's results, but any, any other thoughts on... Uh, the women's Wimbledon draw, Carl?
1: Just briefly, because we did already talk about it in a recent episode, it's worth saying that Barty is the big favorite in your forecast, that she's the top-rated in grass court ELO by quite a ways. Or, sorry, uh, she's second-rated to Kerber and top-rated overall in ELO. Um, So even though 18% isn't high enough to say we, we expect her by any means to win Wimbledon, uh, she has the best chance to, and that she would then win two in a row right after um, Osaka had won two in a row. Yeah, and I have to say
0: the the channel slam would be even more impressive than Osaka's New York and, and Melbourne uh, coming on such a, such different surfaces. But yeah, that'll be interesting to see. One thing I noticed glancing at the, the ELO ratings before is Barty's... Barty's peak elo, or where, where her elo rating is now, is, is is climbing pretty high on the list of all time peak elos. I don't have a handy list of of the best of, of of all time, but on the the elo ratings reports on Tennis Abstract, you can sort the whole table by by active players' peak elos, and I mean she's far behind where Serena or Venus uh, got to their peak. She's also behind Wozniacki's peak, and I think maybe narrowly behind Kuznetsova's peak ranking as well or peak elo rating but that's it I mean she we just went through about a year where there was so much instability and no one really set themselves apart from the pack like there were a lot of players in this sort of in a 2000 to 2100 range in in terms of elo rating so so very good but but not dominant and I wouldn't say Barty's at a dominant level yet, but she's getting close. I mean, if, if she does win Wimbledon, or maybe even if she, she has a, a deep run against some quality opponents to get to the semifinals, let's say, um, she'll probably cross into the 2200s, which is something we haven't seen from from a WTA player in some time. So she's, she's really, really distinguishing herself at the top of the list.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Azarenka is another one who's ahead of her, but I count eight slam champs who are behind Barty in peak elo.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. That,
1: that says something.
0: Um, yeah. And I mean, if we did extend that to all of WTA history, I mean, obviously we're adding several more names, uh, but they are mostly the all time greats like the, the hall of fame caliber players who are at the, the 2200 level or higher. There just aren't that many women who've ever reached that threshold and I mean, Barty doesn't even have to play great over the rest of the year to do that. She just has to have another another few pretty good wins. So, men's Wimbledon, or before we get to men's Wimbledon, let's talk, talk men's Eastbourne, because I want to talk about Taylor Fritz. Um, there were two grass court tournaments, one in Antalya, Turkey, which had a not super thrilling field, uh, although I do want to talk about the winner there, Lorenzo Sonego, a little bit, but First, I do want to talk about Taylor Fritz. It was an All-American final at the 250 in Eastbourne, Taylor Fritz and Sam Querrey. Fritz really breezed through it. It took barely an hour, uh, broke serve in in both sets, which is not a that easy of a thing to do against Sam Querrey on, on a grass court. Um, so Taylor Fritz is now, I think he's inside the top 32. Maybe he jumped up to 31 or something like that, but he won't be seated at Wimbledon. But he seems to me like a pretty dangerous player. Um, like a really big serve, hits really hard. Uh, He he seems to have really rounded out his game. And one thing that I think this this sort of thing takes us by surprise often. When a player breaks in very early, and and Fritz definitely did, by the time they're 21 or 22 years old, it, it feels like they're veterans. And we forget that they're still quite young with a lot of developmental time to run. And I feel like we're falling into that familiar trap with Fritz because
1: he's especially when they're a parent especially what especially when they're when he's a dad you know it makes him seem like older than his years there you go
0: that's that that it could be a factor the, the the commentators in the in the Eastbourne final were talking about that quite a bit that he seemed more comfortable being able to travel with his family having sort of the the home life settled down a little bit so so yeah I mean the, the he he seems old because of that it also could have explained why it took him a little bit longer to to develop into a top 30 level player than some people might have expected a couple of years ago but as it is now he's ranked he, he on monday he will be ranked 5th among players under 22 he just leapfrogged Francis Tiafo and Tiafo is someone that i think people have been focusing on as as the great hope for american men's tennis and they're within a few months of each other, and having seen Tiafo a few times this year, having now seen Fritz look really good yesterday carl wh- where would who would you pick between these two i mean do you think that do you think
1: that Fritz has a rosier future than tiafo does I mean recency bias et cetera et cetera but but yeah, i do i mean I think like you start with the serve just being a bigger weapon and that that gives him such an edge starting out, so he just has to, like, stay close on on other stuff. And, um, yeah, I think he really has used used the phrase something like rounded out his game, and and that's what it looks like to me. I mean, I saw a fair amount of him even in the juniors and then a couple years ago, and now he looks comfortable kind of no matter what ball he's getting, which is a great description of what you need to do on grass courts, but also just sets him up well generally. I mean, he... He can be aggressive with his backhand. He can hit touch shots. He's okay coming to net. Um, he, he has options in a point if, if he doesn't win it with the first shot.
0: Yeah, and we saw that with his performance on clay. This is something we've talked about in a number of episodes, that the, the American men are pretty much absent from the European clay swing. And Fritz played a full schedule of European clay events, and I think he lost to Djokovic twice. Um, at least one of those was pretty close so it's it seems like he was one fortunate draw away from making some noise on the european clay which is i mean something the american men rarely do i mean in fairness to tiafo since we're comparing the two i if i remember right tiafo made the Estoril final last year so i mean he has some of those same skills but i feel like fritz is at at a higher level and to have a young American man who's competitive on, on all three major surfaces. That's, that's really something. I mean, that, that sets him apart from the pack in, in my mind, at least.
1: Just, um, to fill out that picture on, on Fritz on clay, he did lose twice to Djokovic. He lost twice to Nishikori. He lost to Batista Agut. If we were just talking about losses, that doesn't tell you anything, but he did also beat Hella Dimitrov, Schwartzman, Sangha, um, and guess how many tournaments he played on clay uh, between, you know, April through the French Open. So I'm counting the French Open.
0: Well, you mentioned five losses, so I'll say <laughs> <laughs> at least five, maybe six. Eight. He played eight clay tournaments. I didn't even know you could do that.
1: I mean, I'm counting Houston, which which helps pad it out. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's... That's not just playing the full complement. I mean, he played Estoril, he played Lyon the week before the French Open. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest clay um, clay schedules that I've seen, even counting the dirt ballers.
0: Yeah, that's Benoit Paire level journeyman grinding. That's impressive. I remember w- w- maybe it was two years ago in one of our first episodes, but we were talking about how. How a lot of American men were missing opportunities, not because they're great clay court players or ever would become them, but if you have a ranking that'll get you into some of these clay events, a big server like Query or Isner, like they're they have a good chance to win a couple of rounds. Like I, you're not going to make them a probable winner in Barcelona, but like somebody like that can win on any any surface. They're just deciding to take a vacation then instead of racking up ATP points on clay, and it seems like Fritz is taking the exact opposite approach. So. That's, that's really cool I didn't realize it was so extreme I can feel myself liking him more already he didn't take a single week off between Houston and the French Open that's that's impressive did he play any grass court tournaments before Eastbourne two wow so he's been playing basically
1: every week yeah well I mean he missed the second week of the French Open but yeah he didn't he didn't go play a clay court challenger the second week Sounds like he should have.
0: <laughs> or he could have gone he could have played the gra- one of the grass court challengers the second week of Roland Garros. That's a missed opportunity. Come on, Taylor. Lazy. Maybe he was spending time with, with his family. I guess so. Well, maybe next year. So one other American man I want to mention, we've been talking about Query quite a bit and Tiafo in passing, but uh, but John Isner is, you know, the, the the historical figure at Wimbledon and got to the semifinal and, and last year, always a threat on this surface at this tournament, but he's been injured since Miami. So he, he's more of a question mark than usual. Um, he's got Casper in the first round, which probably good for him since Casper has been, has, has,
1: as far as I know, not set foot on a grass court yet. But, um, well, wait, hold on. It's the day before the first day of Wimbledon. I bet he set foot on at least one grass court just by accident.
0: Yeah, I guess so. If I more carefully uh, peruse the Norwegian media, I'd probably have an answer to that. So yes, he's probably done that, or at least set foot on some grass, even if he hasn't played tennis on it. But Isner, what, what do you think? Is, is, is he a, a serious factor here, despite coming back from injury?
1: I mean, I would, no offense to Norway, but I, I don't know if I could pick a better first round opponent if I were Isner. And that's great because that means he can, he can ease into the draw. I, I, I always fall back on that kind of cliche, play your way into the draw. Don't know if, it, if it's a real thing or not, but I think if you're coming back from a long injury that having, you know, a relatively easy matchup or two is is more helpful than if you're not. In any case, i am um, I know Isra made the semi here last year. He's got a whole lot of points to defend and a lot of motivation. I've never been a total believer in Isra on grass because his return game transforms from the worst to, or I guess second worst to Evo to so bad that he's almost definitely not going to break in every set. And that just seems unlikely to to propel him that far. Whereas Raonic, as a contrast, is another big server who seems to actually just like up all of his game on grass. Um, so I don't expect that much from Isner, but not that much of that is because he's coming back from injury. So which, who do you think the
0: last American man standing is going to be?
1: I think it's one of the finalists from Eastbourne. I, I think query looked good enough to make the final. We haven't heard much from him lately, and he's made a semi before on Wimbledon and is someone who I think significantly ups his game on grass. So... Yeah, I think I think those are the two most likely. Although I'd be very surprised if either made it past I don't know the fourth round. What about yeah, you?
0: But yeah, that does seem like a big ask. I would I would vote for Fritz over Query. I I have a hard time seeing Query pull off an upset. Um, I mean, I suppose a narrow one would be possible, but like if if I haven't looked at their draw, I didn't I didn't anticipate talking about him specifically, but. I mean, he he's gonna run into a good player in the at least in the third or fourth round, and I don't think he's gonna get past that. But the, this could be a breakthrough event, I think, for Taylor Fritz. I think he looks that good. Um, so yeah, I, I would I would definitely pick Fritz over Query there, and also over Isner. And and just for the record, uh, on behalf of Norway, offense taken. There are. Are 16 qualifiers. You could have singled out instead of Casper Rood as the easiest possible um, opponent for John Eisner. Some of them, I'm sure, are are better on grass, but I don't buy it. I think Ruud might be bottom 10. That's as low as I'll go for Casper Ruud on behalf of my adoptive country. Um. So let's see. How about the same thing for Canada? We've got more. We've got more contenders there. We keep talking about Ronich. We've mentioned Aujay Aliassim. Uh, Shapovalov has been known to give us some Grand Slam exploits. Who do you think the last Canadian man standing is?
1: Uh, first, uh, a footnote. Your your pre ingestion of Eastbourne Elo rating is so low on Fritz on grass that he has a 04 percent chance of making the quarterfinal. Wow, Um, I think that's going to change quite a bit because his draw isn't that scary. Although Isner is in the same, um, I don't know what you call it, set of eight. So only one of those two can make it uh, to the last 16. For Canada, uh, Raonic. Yeah, I've been really, you know, even his losses on grass have been to good players with Raonic actually winning a higher percentage of return points, but being unlucky or less clutch or whatever you prefer. So, yeah, I um, I think he's back. His ace rates have been outstanding. You know, obviously, I'm not that confident in this pick with um, Felix looking so good, but um, I'm going to go with Ronich. And again, I, I I haven't looked at the draw carefully, so this could be a terrible pick. Yeah,
0: um, I, I hope you're right. I would love to see Ronich continue to be a factor. I mean, I would love to see him be back and healthy for a long period of time and really see what he can do. Because I remember maybe it was five years ago. I'm not sure how far back you have to go to when we were all really optimistic about Ronich. I mean, a lot of people didn't like him because he was maybe even more of a serve bot then than he is now. But I think people expected big things from him and injuries have derailed that. So I would love to just, just in general, I want to see how good players can be if you, if you take that uncertainty out of the mix. So, Mm. And even if that doesn't happen, even if all we see is what he can accomplish on grass then it's always great to have, have legit surface specialists like him playing their best at the right time of year um, I find it really hard not to be overexcited about Ajay Aliasim, I mean he just looks so good, even in matches he's losing I, I recently watched the replay of his semifinal in Queens club that he lost to Feliciano Lopez and yeah, I mean, he had a bunch of double faults. I think if you took the double faults out of the equation, he wins the match. That's a big if, of course. But he looks so good. I mean, the, this, the, the way that we talk about Kyrios's serve game as being electric, uh, just being on another level from the rest of the tour, I think I think Ajay Ali Asim is really close to that. And, of course, Ajay Ali Asim doesn't come with some of the mental baggage and the extreme return game weakness that, that Kyrgios does. So I'm probably jumping the gun. At least I, I have some good company because I saw on Twitter this morning that apparently at least one betting site has Ajay Ali Asim as the fifth favorite at Wimbledon. That seems outrageous and far too optimistic, but but I understand the impulse behind either their decision or the bettors who are driving that number. Uh, he, he looks like someone who will win Wimbledon. And logically, he's not going to do it this year. But even if Ronich is the last man standing this year, I think Auger Ali is seen the guy with uh, with the highest chance of retiring
1: with, with the Wimbledon trof- winner's trophy in his trophy cabinet. Yeah, he's got a lot more years to do it. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's just so much hunger uh, for the men's game to have with the women's games had a lot of recently a breakout teenage star winning or forget teenage, just really young star winning a grand slam title that, that can lead to over enthusiasm and um, taking advantage by bookmakers.
0: Yeah, that could be. And, and like I say, I'm, I'm on board. Like I, I, I've been, I've been professionally skeptical of this sort of let's call it a scouting judgment for over a decade now. I mean, my, 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 my job, my company is built around providing a second opinion to baseball scouts. So like when you look at someone and just think, wow, he's amazing or wow, he's going to be amazing. Like, yeah, I'm the guy who gives you the numbers that say, well, he's not quite that amazing yet. But even, even with that mental training, um, I, uh, I find it hard to, to not get that excited, uh, watching Ajay JLA So, so I, I get it.
1: Um, for a second when you said you, you'd been professionally skeptical for a decade, I was like, I know we've been watching this kid for a while. Has it been that long? <laughs> have you have you been shaking your head about him when he was seven? If I had known about him, I probably would have. I mean, I, I feel a little bad about
0: some some young stars because my instinct is always like, okay, if there's a if there's an eighteen year old that we're talking about, or a fifteen year old in the case of Corey Goff, like the very fact that they're in the news means that someone probably is overhyping them. Uh so if if your default answer is just to be skeptical about any tennis player in the news who's in their teens, that's probably a a good choice to make. Uh, the vast majority of the time, you'll be proven right. But I mean, when when you watch Corey Goff blast through Wimbledon Qualies, or you watch Ajay Aliasem hit you know twenty twenty five aces a match on grass, then. you see where the hype comes from and maybe there's something behind it in these cases Uh,
1: yeah I mean this has been a long-standing good bet in sports that if you kind of sum up the conventional wisdom about everyone you realize that it's impossible for them all to achieve what they're projected to given the zero-sum nature and this comes up I think with football recruiting in the U.S. where it's like these 50% of uh, possible players are all top 10% players like no that that can't work Um, so yeah, we would have lots of Wimbledon winners if we if we believed all the hype collectively. Yes. Um,
0: and we're stuck with one Wimbledon a year. One Wimbledon winner a year. Fortunately, we can look forward to a possible fourth-round match between Najee Ali Asim and Novak Djokovic, uh, which will, will give us something pretty exciting to look forward to in not that many days from the start of the tournament, assuming they can both win three matches. Um Final question: My model has Novak Djokovic at forty four percent to win the tournament. Um, partly because he's the, I mean he's the best player in the draw. He's he's rated the highest by Elo. It also helped his case that Federer and Nadal landed in the same half. So the number four seed, uh, or, or his his chalky semifinal opponent is Kevin Anderson, who's probably not going to be there in the semifinals. But all these factors taken together mean he's forty four percent to to win the win the tournament over under on that which which way do you lean Carl
1: I lean slightly under just because Djokovic hasn't been dominant since the US Open like he's he's won the Australian Open he's won some other big titles but he's also lost a lot of matches so I just think 44% is pretty high for for that many matches then again look at his draw. I mean, I usually think the draw is overrated. Your forecast generally agrees by not shifting that much based on the draw. But, you know, Anderson is like such a good case for the point Rafa was making about the Wimbledon seeding formula being unfair. Anderson sh- isn't the fourth favorite and hasn't earned it from ranking points alone and really throws off the draw quite a bit by, by not only taking Rafa... Uh, you know Rafa and Kevin could have gone either way in terms of which half but with Kevin being in in Djokovic's half and I think team is the fifth seed uh, and not dangerous on grass like Djokovic's draw is is really nice much in the way Nadal's draw at the French Open was really nice and I think that'll make that half of the draw a little snoozy until the final but yeah Novak could definitely um, fall against guys who aren't among the very top because he has at tournaments recently
0: yeah, and it, it could be that even if it's not Kevin Anderson, the fact that the draw is a bit weak on that side could mean that the players in the in the Fritz query Isner mold could could go a round or two further than we expect or the the, the seeding would predict, and that means that Djokovic has to clear a couple hurdles like that, and I mean, of course, we pick Djokovic to win those matches, but. Those are those are the kind of matches that feel like upsets in the making on grass. I don't know how much the numbers back that up, but I mean, Ajay Ali Asim is dangerous in the fourth round. He could end up with a, a couple matches largely decided by tie breaks. Um, between then and presumably facing Federer or, N- or Nadal in in the final, so it could be tougher. I I like 44% a lot. I'm having a tough time tilting either way. Like I guess based on what we were just talking about, my instinct is always to go down a little bit, but I wouldn't go down very far. It, it does seem like like his draw could, I mean, to contradict what I was just saying, he could just breeze through to final Sunday and win one tough match to win the title. That would be it. So <laughs> with, with that optimistic view of how exciting the first week of Wimbledon will be, uh, time to watch a lot of women's tennis, I guess. That's certainly how I'm going to treat it. Carl, any final thoughts before we
1: wrap up our Wimbledon preview? Two. One is, on brand, we under-hype what we just hype. We were just saying how exciting Felix and Djokovic could be, and then we were saying, yeah, he's going to breeze through to the final. So, you know, prove us wrong, Felix. Second, uh, you did say earlier you had a thing or two to say about the Antalya champ, and I think even briefly, I, I want to hear what that is.
0: Okay, maybe this will be a teaser for what we'll talk about next week when it will be totally irrelevant, but the winner in Italia was Lorenzo Sonego, who is Italian. I think he's on the young side. I don't even remember how old he is, but he's mostly played on clay up to this point. I mean, he hasn't done much on any surface, but um, being Italian, most of his challenger opportunities were on clay. So you mentioned him in passing as possibly someone to throw in the category of, of, of up and coming clay court guys. That's how I thought of him winning a grass court title is is off-brand for that sort of person, but not entirely surprising for two reasons. One is that he's got a huge serve. I mean, he was clocking, I don't know, 225k on some of his first serves in the final in Antalya. Hits really, really hard. And that all fits in nicely with what we've seen from Matteo Berrettini lately. And what I think is worth a longer discussion and hopefully a blog po- blog post or two uh, in the near future is is isolating these guys who manage to be good on clay and grass. We, we've talked about that before, just speculating about what those characteristics might be. But specifically, what I'm wondering is how much serve uh, just simply serve quality like how many points won on first serve or aces or unreturned serves some stat like that how much that predicts grass court success because we tend to talk about all of the sort of x factors of, of adjusting to rough bounces or being able to move well on a certain surface or things that are tough to quantify but it seems like if all you had was unreturned serve percentage on any surface you could do a pretty good job of of ranking players by how good they'll be on a grass court. And all the wins lately by Berrettini and now Sonego as well seem to back that up, that a big serve will get you a long way, even if you've almost never set foot on a grass court before, which I'm guessing is close to true in in Sonego's case. So to be continued at some point, probably the next time Berrettini or Sonego does something um, of note, regardless of what surface it's
1: on. I look forward, and Sonego hit 27% aces on his serve points in the final, so let's see what he does at Wimbledon. In fairness, that's slightly overstated because Keczmanovic
0: was exhausted or just really dejected by the end of that match, so the last couple of Sonego service games, maybe even everything but the first Sonego service game in the final set, he was he was barely even trying. He was going full curios and walking to the net as Sonego missed a first serve on match point, it was borderline embarrassing. But, I mean, the the, the power is real. Let's say 23% and, and still be impressed. But... That, I guess better than retiring in a
1: final, I guess? Yeah,
0: probably. Especially since it goes by so fast with someone hitting aces on, on every other serve point or close. So, good. Let's wrap it up there. Carl, thank you as always for your insights and for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. Listeners, thanks for sticking with us through another episode. This has been episode 68, the Mahoo episode of the Tennis Abstract podcast. Uh, I've been Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com with Carl Bialik, and we'll see you next week. Enjoy Wimbledon.